Hello and welcome to My Biggest Lesson, the show that brings you the key learnings from the most influential founders, executives, and investors in the Colorado tech community. My name is Adam Burrows. And I'm Chris Erickson. Together, we are the co-founders of Range Ventures. An early stage venture firm based in Denver. You can find out more about what we're up to at range.vc. Our guest this week is Rory San Miguel. Rory is the co-founder and CEO of Propeller Aero, a 3D mapping and data analytics company based in Sydney, but with a North American headquarters based in Denver. Rory is a self-proclaimed drone guy and has a long history in this space, previously co-founding a company called Flirty, a drone delivery service, starting a university club called Create UAV, and ultimately starting Propeller, where he's had a ton of success. Rory, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. Cool. Love to hear a little bit about your past, your experience, and, and how you came to found Propeller. Yeah, so Propeller's been going for eight years now. In case you can't tell, I'm Australian. I'm sitting here in Denver now in our US office, but the company was born in Sydney, uh, where I grew up. I met my co-founder, Francis, at a drone delivery startup. So we got together in 2013, and I was studying robotics at the time at uh, university. We got together, uh, we ended up meeting kind of on the job as co-founders at a, another company, a company that was focused on drone delivery, like I said, and it was, it was, that was actually a crazy story. So I was working at an, at an electrical engineering company, doing some sort of work in the lab, fixing things. And then across the hallway in this big sort of glass building that we were working at, I saw some people building drones. And at the time I was doing a lot of that in my sort of spare time with university and just outside of uni. And so I knocked on the window and asked, what are they doing? And they said, oh, we're building a drone delivery company. I said, great. Do you need a drone guy? And they said, yes. And the next day I was a co-founder of this company um, called Flirty. And that was, that was a wild ride. We did, I was there for six months with Francis and there was six co-founders in total. Um, we went through an accelerator program in Sydney, which gave us a really good taste for sort of building a company because at the time, you know, I knew nothing about, you know, churn and AR and any of the kind of SaaS things that we, that are now kind of second nature. So spent all night, you know, every day in the lab trying to build these drones and 3D printing everything and mucking around. It was tons of fun. Um, ultimately, four of the six of us peeled out of that company. And then Francis and I, we got along particularly well. So decided to come back to Sydney and Propeller was born the next, the next week. So and the founding story for Propeller was really that, you know, we were quite good at drones at the time um, and still are, and that someone was going to figure out a business in drones. And so we started off with the solution, not a problem, um, which is not how the textbooks say to do it. Uh, we ended up talking to a bunch of people that we knew were using drones, including some construction companies. And while the first version of the company, the first thinking was, I would build a drone, Francis would build some software. And we'd build this, this kind of combination that allowed customers to go out and create maps. We quickly realized, and this was led by some customer interviews, we quickly realized that, uh, and this is what they said to us, like, don't worry about the drones. The drones are getting sorted out. Build us the API for drone data. Make it easy to uh, work with the information that drones can collect. Uh, and that became Propeller. So sadly, we put away our drone ambitions uh, in terms of actually building drones. I, you know, didn't know what to focus on, um, but you know, you kind of figure it out and you change tack. And so ended up, you know, on the road trying to find construction companies and quarries and mines around Sydney that needed our very first version of the product. And Propeller's kind of 
continued in that way. And we've focused more and more as we've grown the company now, you know, we're about 180 staff across Sydney, Denver, Amsterdam, and the Philippines. Brilliant team. And yeah, double down on exactly that, helping people use the drone data more effectively. And yeah, we can talk more about sort of what specifically the product does as we get into it. And uh, Rory, you mentioned eight years ago when you first met, you know, your co-founder, you were a drone guy. How'd you become a drone guy? I hated my university degree so much that I needed to find something else to do to make me happy. And I was, like I said, studying robotics. And so had a good understanding of the technology. And as a kid, you know, was, I was the guy that had to fix the Wi-Fi at the house and fixing all of the, our neighbor's Wi-Fi and ended up just playing with computers nonstop. So I had that side definitely be computer focused. And then my uncle was an auto electrician. And when I wasn't mucking around with computers, we were building go-karts and playing with things on his farm, fixing engines. So those two things came together into my kind of robotics degree. And once drones got going, you know, it became obvious that there was a mix of hardware and mechanical and software and robotics. And so it was just the perfect platform to actually do robotics, unlike the degree, which was so dry and theoretical. Uh, they didn't really know where to apply, sort of how to get robots into a practical form. So, yeah, it was it was simply um, it was simply how how dry the degree was. I had to find an alternative route. But Rory, I I can relate to that. My undergrad was in computer engineering, and the the classwork versus the cool stuff you can do with it outside was was very different. Would love to jump into sort of you know why Colorado, right? So you. Are from Sydney. You guys have a presence there, but your U.S. presence is in Denver. Why did you guys pick Denver? So it's a it's a funny story. Um, well, it's funny and it's serious. I'll start with the funny bit. We were starting to build our customer base, and it's painful selling and supporting customers from Sydney when you're in the U.S. When the customers are in the U.S., so we were starting to think, you know, where does Propel need to be set up in the U.S. and let's start building out the team. Um, my co-founder Francis really wanted to live in New York, and so we kind of just made a default decision. Let's just do New York. And then a whole bunch of kind of timely learnings started to appear. Number one, time zones are painful between Sydney and New York. So it's another two hours less time overlap that you get with New York. Flying there is hard. It's expensive. And it's not exactly the mecca for construction technology, I would say. So all of these things started to come together. And at the same time, Propeller was working a big, a big partnership agreement with a company that's based here called Trimble. They're a you know ten thousand person, fifteen billion dollar GPS technology company, and that Trimble deal was starting to look pretty likely. And the idea there was that we'd have a big distribution agreement, and they would grey label our software and, and sell it through their channels. So our investors were joking, again serious joking, but joking with us that they think partnerships are where startups go to die, and I think everyone would agree with that phrase generally. Uh, and so we thought, well, let's make this partnership not die. Let's not, let's kind of, how do we double down on it? And we thought the best way to double down on it will be to actually park in their backyard as close as possible, get to know them, have barbecues, you know, the things that you just won't do when you're remote. And that's what we did. So we kind of, we'd, we'd actually hired two staff in New York. And between the time when we hired them and when they were meant to start, the office had relocated from New York to Denver. And so I was actually reading the email the other day. It's pretty funny. It's like, hey, you know, we're really thrilled to have you join the team, but unfortunately, we're not going to set up a Denver office anymore. Uh, sorry, a New York office anymore. We're going to set up a Denver office. Are you still interested? And, and both of them ended up working remotely for us and, and still are here. So 
that was really how we picked Denver and it all happened pretty quickly. But we've been asked the question so many times. We wrote a blog post about it. So for anyone that's interested, you can read on our on our blog why Propeller chose Denver. That's great to hear. And we're, we're excited to have you here. And I think maybe, maybe Adam, we can do a whole separate follow-up podcast on on startup partnerships, because I think we, we share the, the, <laughs> same, the same general view, but, um, you know, there's always alternatives to that. So, you know, tell us about uh, one Colorado company that is not Propeller that you're excited about right now. Oh, it's going to have to be my good buddies at Asina. Asina is also a construction technology company. they also founded in Sydney, also chose Denver as their uh, as their US home. And so Sean, who's the CEO and founder, he lives here now with his family. They they solve a totally different sort of part of the problem set, the tool set for our customers, but it's like a mini ERP, I suppose, for these contractors. And yeah, I just think they've got a super bright future that, you know, the space that they're in is full of incumbents and they're just a small, nimble team that's growing growing really quickly. So it's going to have to be Sean and a sign on. Roy, I appreciate the Australians uh, uh, showing the love for each other. And, and we'll definitely, you Sean, have to. Sean, Sean's a guy we're definitely going to have to have on the podcast too. Um, he, he's a great storyteller, as you know. <laughs> totally. And we'll make sure that he says Propeller is his. I, I will make, yeah, exactly. Oh, I, he better. He better. Well, cool. Really, really appreciate that. So Roy, I'd love to talk about why we're here, which is to hear about your biggest lesson, eight years of, of building Propeller, lots of experience before that. What's your biggest lesson and, and uh, how, how'd you learn it? So, so I needed a minute to think about this, probably getting pricing right. I mean, I think, you know, as I was thinking about this, there's all the likely candidates, people and hire well and nurture your staff and all the things like all critical. Um, but I think Propeller's done a better job of that than kind of par just accidentally, but we're, we're really proud of the performance there. The reason I, I bring up pricing is because, again, I think early advice was don't really worry about pricing, you know, success slaps you in the face and you can figure that stuff out. You can capture the value at some point, somehow. But when you've got a big channel program, right, you just introduce all of this friction and all of this kind of resistance. And so really it's one of those places now for us that where we need to measure twice, cut once. Um, and in in our space, there's competition. You know, the, the service that we deliver is not zero marginal cost, right? So margins are actually really important as customers scale up, we want to make sure our revenues can scale up, you know, proportional at least. Um, and these are all things that we've kind of learnt on the fly through many iterations. And again, if I had my time again, I think, you know, we've just got so much more experience with the various types of pricing models and what can go well, what goes wrong. Um, and you'd start, I just, I just, I fundamentally believe we'd start with the better pricing. You know, pricing wouldn't be an issue with Propeller, I think, in another life. And maybe it would, but we say that, you know, with the benefit of hindsight. Um, I do think that, yeah, it's something that we're working on now. It's something that we've gotten a lot of big enterprise customers now that are kind of organically grown with us and they, they're getting automatic renewal notifications every two weeks, just starting to get quite frustrated. Like, come on, Propeller, get your shit together and make it easy for us to do business with you. So, so that has been, I think that's one of my biggest lessons. I love this topic. Chris and I just got off a call earlier with a startup in our portfolio talking about pricing and it's it's something that I think to your point, doesn't get dealt with often until too late. If you were to go back and start Propeller again or go start another company, what would you do differently with regard to pricing? How would you approach it? Well, just to say this, I think we are trying to solve pricing in that way right now, right? So I always think, oh, the next company will be better. And then I snap 
instantly and say, okay, apply the learnings to this company. This is, this is still the best company I've ever worked at. So some things, right? Like, first of all, what kind of product are you building? Are you building a service, uh, like a platform grade component that needs to be built in these increments and the customers have an understanding of these minute increments like AWS, right? That's a really different type of pricing to a product like Propeller, which is trying to target a less technical part of the market. And therefore there needs to be useful abstraction and useful bucketing and use, like we need to be able to speak their language. Um, and so I think Propeller has oscillated between abstracting our costs and abstracting sort of the thing that customers are buying. And then we get feedback at some, sometimes that, oh, you know, we want to experiment with digital sales or we want to create a freemium. And so then we'll introduce these totally different concepts like putting your credit card in. And it's just, it's a very jarring experience to have, you know, a big like multinational construction company dealing with us in invoices on an annual basis in one division and then credit cards in another division. I kind of think you've got to pick a lane in a way. And again, it comes down to that really composed understanding of where are you, what kind of product are you building and for who and what are they expecting and making sure that your pricing suits. So we're doing a bunch of work now to, to create the right kind of enterprise pricing model. We're fixing some of the unit economics, you know, um, as we scale, we're making sure that Propeller's uh, overall financial position gets better with time, not worse. Whole bunch of things on the go. And then, of course, dealing with inflation and figuring out how to manage all of this through channel partners where there needs to be consistency and we can't experiment as quickly as a as a digital-only company, which, you know, has its website and, and some salespeople and that's it. So, yeah, a lot, a lot in there, I would say. So, Rory, something that, that we screwed up at, at, at my last company was when we set our, our pricing at first, I, I think we spent like an hour, right, figuring out what the first pricing was, right? And our, our wrong assumption was, oh, well, it will be easy to go back and change it, right, if we got it wrong type of thing. Um, and we, we, we massively underpriced it. And it was insanely difficult to go back to current customers and even future customers because they had heard what our previous pricing was. Do you have any advice, you know, very tactically on, on best practices for figuring out that first set of pricing? Because I know from my experience, we screwed it up and it was much harder to undo than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I think pricing, like to me, there's some fundamentals. One of the fundamentals is what you can charge for a service or a product comes down to the value it creates and the price you can get it for elsewhere. And I think people often talk about it just as that first point, the value it creates. And you hear a lot of ROI, you know, let's go and figure out the ROI and charge 10 or 20% of that. But you really need to also make sure that it's competitively priced. And if you're in a market with tons of venture capital, um, you know, the fact is that the venture capital is subsidizing customers, which is crazy. And it shouldn't be allowed, but it is, right? Because growth is what we want to see. And Again, everyone has this view that we'll fix it later. In terms of how I would look at pricing again, I would make sure that you know we've got a really clear idea of our costs. Again, that's not the most important thing, but setting up pricing that, that, that is blind to your costs is crazy. And so have a good sense of the cost. Again, especially if you've got a product like ours, which, which doesn't have zero marginal cost um, per, per unit that a customer consumes. Um, make sure we you know the costs. 
look at what's out there, understand where you differentiate. And then, yeah, I would say, you know, don't trust your salespeople as well because the salespeople are always reluctant to push. You know, they want to make deals as easy as possible to close. And it takes a salesperson, I don't know, maybe two years of, of closing business before they actually grow into that confidence that the product that they're selling is worth it. And then they're, then they're on the front foot trying to increase prices because it's ultimately good for their commissions and, and their ability to hit quota. So, yeah, I really think it's got to be kind of founder-led. Um, you've got to be brave. We actually had to turn over our whole sales team when we increased our prices. Um, we increased our prices about 10 times in 2017 um, as we pivoted away from our initial customer base towards this kind of new and now our only customer base. The way we did that pivot was the same product, but the way we did that pivot was just increasing prices because we knew one segment of the market could pay and one didn't. And when we wanted, uh, could spend more money. And the sales team was so, they thought we were crazy. And so we, we had to let them all go and, um, and start again. Wow. That's, <laughs> that's interesting that the, the pricing actually had that big of an effect on, on the sales team. Um, well, they all felt like that, that they were unable to do their job. I would made a decision that totally impeded their ability to sell. And it's only because they had the old pricing in their mind. And as soon as you right. delete that legacy and you just reset the conversation, again, something that the senior leadership team and, and the founders can do easily, but that the sales team that's in the trenches every day can't necessarily do as easily, it became obvious that, that was what we had to do. That's interesting. How do you feel, Rory, about you know something we, we see a lot with, with founders early on in, in B2B SaaS is... You know, generally speaking, in my experience, pricing a little bit too low. Love to see what do you see with founders? What do you think some of the common mistakes um, that, that you see made and, and any advice you would give? My advice is always increase prices. Just keep increasing your prices until it really breaks, I would say. There's a company that I work with that has done that to great effect, which has been fun to see. And he was really reluctant to kind of keep pushing upwards. Again, I think it comes down to having a really good idea of what your product does and what customers are expecting from a pricing perspective. If you're a you know super granular service, like an API grade product, again, you need to dial it in pretty tight because you customers might expect lots of volume and they're going to start hesitating at scale. Um, but if you're selling to construction companies and they're used to spending you know $100,000 a week on fuel, and you're helping them save a little bit of fuel and there's not much competition, I would, I would push the boundaries as much as possible. Yeah, I think something I've, I've just experienced, Rory, is a lot of times founders, we're always colored by our, our own daily experiences. And you may think, hey, $1,000 a month, that seems like a lot. That seems like a really high price, right? But in the, to your point, in the context of what that business may be spending on other things, that may be insanely cheap. Yeah. So, so keeping that all in perspective is really important. Yeah, and again, competition, right? Like... I think what it's worth to the customer and how much they can get it for elsewhere. It's no good pricing on ROI or pricing compared to their fuel bill. If they can go and get the exact same product from another company for, for half the price of you, you just won't get anywhere. Um, and if you want to charge more than your competition, which everyone does, you need to be really clear where you differentiate um, and make sure that's reflected in all the marketing and the sales process uh, and that there's referenceable customers to to agree that, that that value exists. It's just, yeah, I think it's really, really important, but yeah, weighing up your own costs, the value to the customer and the price they can get this service from elsewhere. Roy, really appreciate it. This is an incredible lesson. We'll definitely uh, 
have to have to have you come talk to some of our, our portfolio companies sometimes. This is this is sometimes the most key one of the most key levers in the business. Where can our listeners follow what you're up to with Propeller? You can find us on LinkedIn, probably the easiest. Uh, Propeller's all over it. I post, you know, good news from time to time like everyone else does these days on LinkedIn. But yeah, we've got a blog and we also occasionally host happy hours here in the office. So yes, jump on LinkedIn and give us a follow. Cool, really appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks.